I'm Stephanie Cox, and this is Mobile Matters. Today, I'm joined by Ashley Shaler. Ashley is the Vice President of Marketing at Inverta and has spent more than 10 years designing and implementing world-class demand creation and lead management strategies that leverage the latest in marketing technology. She's held client-side and analyst roles in marketing systems and marketing operations and consulting roles that leverage her unique expertise in lead nurturing, account-based plays, content messaging, and social media strategy for more than 40 clients. In this episode, Ashley and I talk a lot about the marketing automation generation and how it impacted both of our careers, balancing being a mom and having a growing career, and we're being real honest, and why there's rarely ever a marketing emergency. And make sure you stick around to the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways so that you can not only think about marketing differently, but implement it effectively. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Um, so I, for all of you listening, I met Ashley, gosh, maybe what late September at an ABM event and absolutely just loved what she had to say and connected with her instantaneously. And I wanted to have her on the podcast because I thought she'd be such a great guest to share her experience and expertise with all of you. So Ashley, tell me a little bit about how you got started in your career and what you're doing now. Awesome. Yeah. It's actually a really funny story. So I'm from Southern New Hampshire originally. I went to Boston University and I graduated from BU in 2003. And, um, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't find a job. And so what I ended up doing was um, selling tickets in a box office full time, um, which was actually, I had sold tickets in the same box office part time during college, um, but it is a way different to sell tickets full time than it is like it's your part time job. Um, and so here I was, you know, out of college, a bunch of my friends had gotten like jobs at ad agencies and like other, you know, more, let's just say high profile gigs. And I was, you know, logging hours in, in a cash only box office. But what that led me to get a good understanding of was just the Ticketmaster system and in general customer data. So eventually I was able to parlay that into a gig at the TD Garden um, which is owned by Delaware North Company. So they own both the Garden and the Bruins. So I did a lot of ticketing for um, for those events. And it was sort of right in the precipice of, of this concept of database marketing really gaining steam. And um, marketing automation platforms were sort of, uh, you know, gaining some momentum as tools to facilitate this. And so I just basically stepped up and said, hey, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of customer data that we're collecting through the ticketing process that we're not necessarily leveraging. And, you know, I think if we invested in one of these platforms, we could, you know, we could be doing some smarter marketing um, cross, you know, cross selling across our audiences who, you know, might want it, might today be attending Disney on Ice, but also might be a candidate for example, for like a Bruins family package. And so that idea became really popular within the company. And one thing led to another, and that's how I got my first marketing operations role. Um, when marketing operations wasn't even necessarily a job title, I actually remember my supervisor at the time being like, what should we call your role? And like Googling, like, what do people who work with marketing automation platforms call themselves? And like <laughs> marketing operations came up and it's like, there you go. So yeah, I mean, I want to say like over 10 years later now, I um, I work uh, for a company called Inverta in marketing services. And, you know, we do a lot of work in ABM, demand creation strategies, MarTech advisory. Um, and all of it is is really sort of 
foundationally grounded in the principle that, you know, these things need to be executable within the technology ecosystem that's available today. And, you know, although we're strategy first, um, it's very important to us that, you know, what we put forward and what we discuss and collaborate with you client on is, is executable. So that's basically the story. I love interesting journeys into that because I think it's so funny. It's kind of like how I got started in digital, which was I graduated from college the same year as you. And, you know, Twitter and Facebook were, you know, soon after starting, the people were creating web, like really creating company websites for the first time. And everyone's like, you're young. You understand technology. You go man- manage the Twitters, as they used to call it. <laughs> yeah. um, or whatever the Facebook is yeah. and the website. And that's how I got kind of really a career started in digital marketing, which is crazy to think that that was only, you know, 15 years ago that it was a novelty that people had a website. I know it's, it's really crazy. It's just, um, you know, the, there's a really, really, um, close colleague of ours at Inverta, Scott Vaughn. Um, he's a CMO of a company called integrate. He calls it the marketing automation generation which in B2B are essentially people who just kind of got their start by being willing to kind of fiddle around with this sort of new type of technology. Um, and then that skill set became so in demand, it was just like a rocket ship for, for you know, career development. And now what was so um, sought after at the time has been so commoditized, like where we are now. So it's just it's so interesting to think about that transition in such a short period of time. No, I completely agree. So thinking about B2B marketing today, what are you seeing as really the biggest gaps that, you know, B2B marketers tend to have in their current marketing strategies since you get to talk to a lot of them in your current role? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, what's interesting. We talk about gaps and, you know, I feel like I feel like I'm already taking like a technology sort of slant to this conversation, but I I don't think that you can ignore that sort of the proliferation of marketing technology has resulted in a lot of skills specialization in organizations. So, you know, you have, you might have your SEO guy or gal, you know, you've got your, your social gurus, you've got your, you know, display whizzes, your, you know, email people, whatever. Um, And I think that, that we've sort of seen this culture of of really really you know defined skill specialization but not a lot of people who are like five tool players you know what i'm saying or really full stack marketers sort of understand the customer and prospect experience and how they're experiencing the brand in the marketplace and how we sort of you know uh mobilize these channels to create that experience and and so oftentimes i hear from my clients you know, oh, we need to be omni-channel, we need to be multi-channel, you know, we need to be doing this and that, but they become so focused on the channels themselves and, and, you know, the frequency of those that they sort of lose sight of the fact that as a prospect or a customer, you're experiencing the brand in all of these places. And it doesn't necessarily matter if one offer is coming via one channel and another offer is coming via another channel, as long as the tone, the style, the brand, the sentiment remains consistent, um, you're getting the results that you need. And so I would just say, one of the gaps that I see is just this overemphasis on on channels and, and preoccupation with channels. And I would say another gap 
in B2B in general is just humanity, empathy um, in marketing. I think, you know, we work with a lot of serious brands that sort of can hang their hat on, you know, whatever the approved value statement language is. (laughs) And, you know, there's not a huge appetite to experiment with what people actually connect with, which is humor you know, empathy, that the wonderful things that just make us people, right? The the shared experiences. There's not a huge appetite for most brands. I, I shouldn't say all, for most brands um, in B2B to sort of explore more of that. So I think sometimes when you talk about channels, part of me wonders, is it really because you want to be in that channel or you want to, you know, be cross-channel, omni-channel, or you heard some bu- buzzword that you now feel like you must go do? Totally, totally. It's, you know, there's definitely a preoccupation with, you know, oh, well, we had this offer here, so we can't have it here also, when the reality is as a prospect or a customer, they're not thinking about, oh, I got the offer, you know, I saw the offer in in the display advertising, and now I'm seeing it, you know, in email or whatever. They're not, they don't operate that way. What they're seeing is is sort of the the consistent and reinforced brand message. And, um, you know, so we try to, yeah, we try to migrate away from omni-channel for the sake of it, or or like, let's use this new tool just because we have it, um, when it's not necessarily like the best idea for the program. <laughs> All right. So we've been talking a little bit about MarTech already, but how do you think about using MarTech to solve business challenges to make sure you're actually focused on solving a challenge and not just using technology for the sake of technology? Because if we're being honest, we've all kind of done that before in the past to some extent. So how do you advise companies Mm -hmm. to think about their MarTech stack very specifically that is aimed at solving business challenges? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, I think you just mentioned it. We've all sort of fallen into that trap at at one time or another. I think there's a little bit of a keeping up with the Joneses that goes on in general through B2B marketing leadership. Um, That sort of, you know, you and you see it happen every day, like one sort of, you know, company who's who's known for having a very high powered marketing organization will invest in a particular thing. And then a bunch of others sort of follow suit. and it, we've done a lot of just sort of internal brainstorming on this because, you know, the landscape continues to grow, but there also continues to be acquisitions and, you know, mergers and, and lots of other changes. And the, the issue that we see is sort of companies wanting to stay ahead of that volatility, um, you know, always kind of wanting to know, well, what's the next best thing? Or should I invest in this particular thing if they're going to get acquired or they're going to, you know, potentially change the roadmap of the product and start focusing in an area that's not necessarily something that we need. Um, So, you know, a very, very super, super smart um, guy on our team, Alden Dale, once said, you know, it's not, it's not what is the best tool for this or what is, you know, the best tool in the marketplace for this particular thing. It's what is the right tool for your organization today? Um, and I think if you're a company and you can focus on <clears throat> solving the problems that you have today within the skill sets that are incumbent in your company and how, or, or in your marketing organization and how you're structured without thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or how the landscape is going to change, you are much more likely to end up, you know, investing in the right tool for your 
company. Um, and that sometimes could be a point tool when there are other platform players out there. It's very desirable, I think, for companies to want to invest in a platform tool when they're only really trying to solve one discrete problem. And so my recommendation is always solve that problem. Solve the problem that you have today. Try to ignore the noise. Try to ignore the bells and whistles. Um, you know, try, try to solve the problem that's at hand. And then, you know, as your company grows, changes, as your marketing organization grows or shrinks, you know, your staffing model changes, then let's revisit the investments that you've made and just ensure that they're still the right investments. So that's usually how we try to approach it. But it's definitely not, it's, it's definitely something that I don't feel anybody has cracked the code on right now, just due to the volatility of the landscape. No, I completely agree. And then I think the other thing I always tell people to remember is there is no technology that will solve your problem. Yeah, technology totally. is <laughs> technology helps if, if you have a strategy and the resources, but like you can't just buy technology to solve insert whatever problem you're having and assume that like miracles will happen tomorrow and you'll turn it on and revenue will come in. The silver bullet complex. Like if we buy it, it will happen. <laughs> it will happen because it happened for insert certain company on LinkedIn. Exactly. Exactly. I know it's, you, you know, you have to have the right strategy in place. You've got to have the right staffing or at least the right plan for staffing. There's just, there's so many contributing factors to making, you know, tech and tools successful in a business. But yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's, you definitely don't want to fall into that, that trap for sure. <laughs> so one of the things that I know you do current in your current role is a lot of right C-suite consulting and sometimes even play like interim CMO roles. So there's been a lot of talk recently and really for years, but I think it's heated up once again that the role of the CMO is one of the shortest tenures in the C-suite overall. So I'd love to just get your thoughts on what do you think is really driving that abbreviated tenure? Why is it so hard for mar marketing leaders to stay in the C-suite for more than a couple years? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I don't, I don't know that I have the right answer, but I just have some ideas. Um, I think that one of the issues or the traps that marketing had fallen into probably in the last, let's just call it, you know, three to five years, um, is this preoccupation with accountability. So we do a lot of process consulting around lead management and, you know, how marketing reports as an organization. And there's a, so many conversations around things like marketing source versus influenced pipeline and how is that defined? And, you know, is it consistent? Is it a bought in definition, right, in the organization? Um, and there's so much preoccupation with showing marketing's contribution to revenue that I think it's a bit short-sighted sometimes, meaning, you know, you sort of lose, lose track of what the overall goal is, which is making sure that marketing is aligned to all of the strategic business goals, not just revenue generation, although that's a very important one. And also sometimes having faith that some of the, let's call it more upstream, higher level reputation building activities are contributing to engagement right? Maybe in a way that's not specifically reportable today. And I think that that all goes to sort of the migration away from the MQL and like counting the MQLs. 
Um, but I think that marketing just sort of dug a hole when they became so preoccupied with reporting and getting the reporting right. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of challenges with attribution reporting still. And that's not where marketing efforts are best spent. Nobody cares except for the marketing organization. And I think if you could yep. up-level the conversation a little bit and sort of up-level the goals, especially at that CMO level, right? You need to sort of up-level the conversation. It's incumbent upon you to do that. Um, you know, I think, I think that they would have found themselves to be a little bit more of a strategic partner. Um, I also think we're in this sort of era of digital transformation in general, right? You hear it all the time. It's so eye-rolling to me, like just everywhere. Um, but I think that there, uh, within this sort of culture of digital transformation, I think that it's almost an unspoken rule that marketing, it's like incumbent upon marketing to set the tone, the digital tone for the rest of the organization, meaning like the marketing function is supposed to really be the trailblazer when it comes to leveraging digital and really, you know, like I said, setting the tone for, for, you know, how digital is used and sort of the culture of digital within a company. And I think that there's so many components that go into digital transformation, especially with these huge legacy businesses that marketing might be doing a great job, but I think that they sometimes take the fall for where other parts of the organization um, are, are not as successful. Um, in that transformation. And I, I don't think that that's a correct blame or emphasis, but I do think that sometimes it happens. I, I think that CMOs are the most successful when they can focus on both the long game and the short game, right? So when I think of that, I think of sort of the art and science of marketing. The short game are your demand creation efforts, right? Your, your, your sort of directly tied to growth efforts. The long game is the branding, the visibility, the reputation, right? Reinforcing sentiment within the marketplace, being the voice of the customer. And the reality is that those long game elements are oftentimes much more difficult to directly report on, but are as important, if not more than those short game elements. Well, and the one thing that you said that I thought was really interesting was around this idea that marketing is expected to really own digital transformation, which I think everyone wants companies to do, right? They want and they know that they need to better engage with consumers on digital. But then I also feel like there's like a flip side to it, which is, oh, but you want us to totally do it in a different way. I don't know how I feel about that. Mm -hmm. So be different, do different things on digital, but also don't rock the boat too much. And if you rock the boat a little bit and you go take us down a different path, if those results aren't immediately stellar, we start to lose our patience. I mean, have you seen that happen? Oh, so much, so much, especially with this big transition towards more account-based strategies. Um, the, right, the, the sort of the results or the metrics that trickle in from these sort of uh, longer tail programs are not always immediate. Um, and it's a huge culture change in companies um, to be able to say, you know, in three in the first three months of this program, we're going to look at, you know, what might be considered low level activity based metrics, um, huge, huge culture change. So, you know, it's just it's very challenging, I think. And and I think it gets back to that sort of preoccupation with accountability. It's very challenging whenever you're saying, you know, hey, the the numbers or the KPIs that you're used to seeing aren't going to apply here anymore. Um, you know, you often and that's OK. And that's OK. It's, it's oftentimes you need a really sort of transformative evangelical leader of an organization to really, you know, sort of 
m create that culture, you know, make sure that that's okay. Otherwise these programs just don't succeed. So one of the other things I know about you from when we first met was that you have, you know, a wonderful family similar to me and you, I think we, I inst instantly bonded with you over, we have very similar styles when we travel for work <laughs> and how we try and get our family prepped mm -hmm. um, to handle that. So how, how do you handle a successful career balancing that, but while also balancing your family life, which is so important to you. And, you know, what advice would you give to other people that are trying to figure this all out? Because I think that's one thing that I've found as a mom that I don't hear a lot of is like real authentic advice. I hear like, Lena, and you can have it all. Well, you, no, you can't, let's be no. honest. <laughs> um, some days you feel like you're doing great at both. And sometimes you feel like you're failing at one or the other. So I'd love to just hear from you, you know, how, are, how do you handle all of that? And what is your advice to give to other moms that are trying to, trying to figure it out? And honestly, some days just trying to survive. You know, I'm not qualified to give any advice. Let's just start there. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll just, we'll just say that table stakes, like drinking helps, right? <laughs> so you know me. Yeah. But um, no, but seriously, it's, this question is so difficult. I, I mean, anybody who's become a parent or is thinking about becoming a parent, you know, or on the precipice of that will know that your life just completely changes. It just completely changes. Your priorities change. Um, you know, your, your, the availability of free time changes. Um, and I think that, you know, I have not cracked the code on this. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. So I'm like a, a relatively new parent, I would still say. Um, so I have not cracked the code on this, but there are a couple of things that I have learned um, that I can share that have been successful for me. The, the first is, and, and not everybody is able to do this, but try to, you know, work for a company that shares your values, right? Shares shares your, your family values. Um, you know, try to, and if you, you know, if you're not sure if you work for that company, set boundaries for yourself and then have confidence in those boundaries. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you have to pick up your kids at daycare at quarter of five, you need to leave at quarter of five. That is a boundary that you set for yourself and through the organization and have confidence in those boundaries because if you start to doubt yourself, the cracks are going to show and other people are going to see wiggle room right, to get you to compromise those boundaries. So have confidence in those boundaries. Also, know what your priorities are. Um, my priorities are my family. They're the most important thing to me in my life. I am a, a marketing leader and I love my work, but it's not saving lives. Um, and <laughs> yes, so much, preach that. I say yeah. that all the time. Um, you are, as a marketer, there are no real marketing emergencies unless you got drunk and posted something ridiculous on the company's <laughs> Twitter account. Like it probably exactly. can wait till tomorrow. And, and to that end, I would say the do not disturb button on my phone has been a game changer for me too. I work remotely. So um, I do travel a fair bit for work, but I do work from my home office when I'm not traveling. And that is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing the, for, for being a parent. But also it can create some fluidity in terms of when days start and when they end. And so if I'm if my husband is here and my two kids are here um, and it's the evening or it's the morning getting ready, that do not disturb is on on my phone because I found 
I found that if I don't see any notifications come in, if I don't see that I have an email or I don't see that I have a text message or anything, I am much less likely to be preoccupied with my phone. Um, and it's just totally been a game changer for me because I don't feel like I'm missing anything on the work side or, um, you know, or, or behind in any way. Cause I just, I just don't even see it. And that's another boundary that I set for myself. You know, during these times, I don't look at my phone. I'm, you know, I'm focused on my home life and yeah, it's just been a game changer. I, I highly recommend it to anybody like use, you know, mute your notifications, whatever you have to do during those times that, um, that you want to be available for your family. Uh, because you, it's just, it's great. You find when your phone doesn't ring, when it doesn't beep, when it doesn't show you a notification, you kind of forget about it. <laughs> it's good. No, it is nice. Well, and that's, it's funny that you say that because I actually started doing that not a hundred percent exactly the same way, but I took away all notifications on like my notification screen mm -hmm. for email and for social media. And I think the only, the only thing I see is like texts, um, but it's been a game changer for me. I just a couple of years ago, because otherwise it's like impossible. We are so inclined to like glance at our phone so many times, or you hear like, and I, my phone is always on vibrate. My husband gives me so much crap about it. Cause like, I'll lose it in the house. He's like, well, we can't find like, it on vibrate. Like, I know. Right? And, it's, and if we're being honest, it's probably on vibrate, like on a blanket. So you definitely can't hear it or like on the bed or something. Um, but the nice thing about it is like, I never hear that ding or like, if someone calls me, it's vibrating. Like it, I just, it helps. So even if you're texting me, unless my phone's right next to me, I probably mm -hmm. don't even notice. So that's been good for me. I know to help really just be, try and stay focused and also try and just really tell my family, like you are the most important thing. And, you know, for me, I know my kids are older than yours or I have twin 13 year olds, which is a whole separate, ball, a separate, wonderful, wonderful adventure. Um, so I say all the time, I think, um, startups and parenting is why yes. wine was invented. So, but it's, it's great because what I'm doing now, I realize because they have, I mean, they have phones is my behavior is setting the tone for what their behavior mm -hmm. is going to be like. And so we really try to, you know, like no phones at the table, all that type of stuff. But we also try and do like, and we're not as good about it on a consistent basis as I'd like us to be, but we'll do like technology free days, like where we literally will do nothing with technology. So no phones, no TV, nothing like that. And we'll do board games or we'll, you know, go do something else outside that's totally unrelated to technology. And it's so good to help you just kind of like disconnect. And that's part of the reason I know I love mm -hmm. cruising so much is when I go on a cruise, like my phone isn't a safe and there, I don't really have internet. I don't have internet access. I don't watch a TV. I literally am just present. And it's, it really oh gosh, is so Stephanie, good for me. We're health. like two peas in a pod. Cause I'm this, I loved cruising for the same reason. Like, and I actually started doing the whole do not disturb thing to try to model like my behavior on a cruise because I'm like, it's, I don't, I'm so obsessed with my phone in normal life, yet I forget about it in this environment, what's different. And, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, that there's no, you know, you know, that there's no connectivity, right. You know, that, that there's nothing that you, you know, need to, to get back to. And so you're able to abandon it, but to your point, like the behavior modeling, 
like, you know, just having two young kids, I, it's so obvious to me because they're obsessed with our phones. Why? Because we're, we're obsessed with that. And, you know, I think different parents have different philosophies on, you know, the introduction of technology into the lives of their kids. But I just, I just think, you know, you need to, you need to definitely be, you know, aware of the types of behavior that you're modeling when it comes to technology, because especially, you know, in, in this day and age, I mean, the kids get introduced to right social media and so, you know, online interactions so much earlier and before they're really like mentally or emotionally developed to be able to handle it. So, exactly. yeah. Ugh. Anyway, I bet you didn't think your parenting question would cause like, <laughs> cause a little spiral. No, but I, but this is like, honestly, like this to me is like some of the most important part of a conversation because it's the few things that mm-hmm. people don't talk about. I know, you know, I have, you know, with the, with the kids, you know, as you mentioned, social media, so it was a real easy situation for us because all all the social media mm-hmm. apps, so you have to be 13, right? Technically. And so I just used that as an excuse why they couldn't get on there. Well, you, mm-hmm. you're not 13 legally. So it's mm-hmm. not really my role. It's like Facebook's role. It's Twitter's role. Um, and then they turned 13. <laughs> I was like, crap. Um, but the thing about it is, is when they got phones and we waited a long time, we actually waited until they started seventh grade. And I was going to wait until they were 13 to give them, give them their own phones. But I couldn't because my daughter is a cheerleader and she was at cheer camp and they happened to get done early. So I am going to go pick her up. She's supposed to be done at 530. I get there at like 515 and she's the oh. only girl with the coach st- standing outside. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I think I'm, I think I'm early. And I'm like, did, did I get something wrong? And it's like the first day of camp. She's like, well, we got done early. And I was like, and you didn't call, like, oh. you didn't call or text me. She's like, well, I didn't have a phone. And I was like, you didn't tell your coach that? And she's like, well, I mean, no, all the other girls had phones. They just texted their parents. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have to leave. Like, literally the next day when we got her on the phone. Because, like, she didn't want to say something because she, like, didn't want to be embarrassed that she didn't have a phone. And I'm like, okay, I get and my son was running cross country. And I'm like, we, we just need to do, go ahead and bite the bullet. But I actually have their phones pretty locked down. So they can't add apps without like getting access. Like they can't even get to the app store. They can't even get on the internet. Like they can text people. They can make calls. And like we have a really like mm-hmm. big role. Like I can go look at your phone at any time. And it's not everyone's like that. But I think for us, like that's been the most helpful because I just talk to other parents. And, you know, they're finding out like all these things that – you know, other kids or even adults mm-hmm. are sending their children on like Snapchat or TikTok, <laughs> which I don't even understand, which is a separate issue. Um, but it's, I'm just like, I'm just so grateful right now. I don't have to, like my kids aren't, they're okay with not having to deal with that stuff. And, you know, like I think they got excited when they got Instagram for the first time. And I was like, well, you can, you know, you can only friend, you know, connect with your friends or like family. Mm-hmm. It can't be like someone random that you know. And so they've been really good about it, but it, it's, it's hard. And then it's hard because like, that is also my job. So it's like the weirdest thing because my job is to be on my phone. Cause you know, I am a digital marketer and you know, what we do at Lumivate is we build mobile apps. So like part of my job is being on my phone. Um, and you know, we do, I'm over, I oversee mm-hmm. social media and all that stuff on my team. So it's crazy because 
they see me on Twitter or on mm-hmm. LinkedIn, but then I'm telling them, but like, not for you. No, I hear you. I so, think about that a lot. Like, this is our jobs. Like, it, like what, you know, what about the parents who like aren't in this environment every day? Like, how are they supposed to stay ahead of the curve? Like my poor husband doesn't even have any like social media profiles at all. Like, and I'm like, it cannot be incumbent upon me to like stay ahead of the curve here in terms of these little kid apps. Like, I don't but it's it's so true. My husband's the exact same way because he has Facebook and he like never posts anything except for like maybe on like my yeah. birthday or something. He's just like, I just look at it to like look at what other people are doing. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. He like doesn't understand. Like if you had explained to him Instagram or Twitter, mm-hmm. he has no idea. And then I'm, you know, my son's being like, could I get TikTok? And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> and my, my husband's like, I mean, like, I mean, I don't I know what it is. But I was like, the answer is no. And so like my son has started, I do. And my son has started to ask my husband first. Like, he's like, can I insert, can I have, you know, insert like whatever new hot app with, you know, the 13 somethings is going on. And Josh now goes, (laughs) I'm going to talk to your mom. And I'm like, yeah, probably probably not. Yeah. I don't even, I'm not even ready for the 13 year old years. (laughs) It's, it is wonderful and a whole new challenge all at the same time. So back on the subject of marketing, I would love to just really find out from you. There's this big saying that 50% of marketing works, 50% doesn't, and I don't know the difference. (laughs) How do you help marketers figure out what marketing, what's working, especially when we have, you know, as we've kind of talked about a little bit, this so much data and having like analysis paralysis. And in reality, you could probably connect data to show that literally anything is working and it not actually be true. Not, it's not that it's not truthful. It's just not a clear picture of the reality of the situation. Yeah. I, I think goal setting is really important. Um, you know, when you think about like working versus not working, because everything that you do as a marketer, every program that you run, which should be like a, a planned coordinated set of activities should be driving towards some desired outcome. And I think first it's important to have a culture of planning that has objectives associated with it. And then, right, understanding whether or not what you've done has, has you know, reached that objective or, or contributed to, uh, you know, met those KPIs. And I look a lot at just sheer, like, engagement metrics when I think of marketing working. I think marketing is in the spirit of creating engagement and interest where before there wasn't any or there was a baseline. And... Um, so a lot of times when you say, how do I know marketing is actually working? It's, is it driving more traffic to a destination? Um, you know, is it creating more interaction with a particular asset or a particular idea than it had before? Um, I think a lot of times, especially in kind of digital culture, this notion of virality um, is something that you hear, you know, tossed around like, oh, we just need to, you know, we just need to to develop something that's going to go viral. And when the reality is there's no lasting engagement, you know, after the initial sort of spike where I think marketing is working is when there's lasting increased engagement um, in a certain web or digital property or around a certain idea. And a bonus is whether or not there's increased engagement from your sort of discrete target. So whether that's a set of target accounts or a particular industry, or maybe just one account, um, 
you know, that's that's usually how I I like to say, okay, what we're doing is definitely working. Now, I said before, discrete objectives. You know, oftentimes you might have a program that's expressly designed to move opportunities over the finish line, right? And and in those cases, you know, or maybe net new opportunities, it's reasonably easy to say, like, yes, we did that. Right? <laughs> we were able to do yep. that. We had an innovation event. That's why I try to look at more of those upstream activities, because that's where it gets a little bit more nebulous. And that's where I say, like, okay, right, did we grow interest? Did we have a baseline of interest in this particular idea or in this particular web property? Um, you know, and were we able to increase that? Because again, right, most companies have the technology incumbent to be able to, to gauge that. Um, I think in the content marketing world, you know, audience growth is a big one too. You know, are you doing a good job? Well, is your audience growing? Because if you're growing your audience, you are sort of growing the value of your social media property, right? So I think, you know, hey, if the audience is growing, then, then you know, what you're doing is working. But it's not easy, you know, you really need to know this is what we're looking to do here and try not to be all things to all people with every program that you run. You know, it's one thing to say this program is going to be a success if we drive engagement, you know, in the form of web visits to a particular page. It's another thing to say, oh, wait, wait, now we want to make sure that this program is generating net new pipeline. Well, no, that wasn't the original objective. You know? <laughs> so, yep. yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's not an easy thing for sure, but needs to be done planning with, with KPIs associated. It does. Well, and I love that your comment around the viral thing. And I'm just like, I don't know how many times I have to tell people there is no viral button. I don't just push a button and things go viral. <laughs> and you wanting something to go viral, like, like I don't even know what to say about it. Um, all right. I want to end on doing something I call quick hits. So I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions and I just want to get your first gut reaction. Okay. Okay. All right. What's the one thing you wish every marketer would do? Uh, take, take more risks with humor and empathy in their marketing. Yes. Preach. (laughs) What, what's one thing you wish marketers would stop doing? Uh, putting together like really convoluted approval processes for things. <laughs> and then what's one thing every marketer should know? Um, that, you know, that you already know the right answer. So I think if you're, if you're good at your job, you, you know, the right answer, you have your finger on the pulse of the market, like don't doubt yourself, you know, just do it. And lastly, the most frustrating thing about marketing is. Uh, Can I go back to my convoluted? No. Um, (laughs) Can you tell I might be like experiencing this right now? But um, no, (laughs) I would say the most frustrating thing about marketing is um, just the the lack of appetite for for creativity and experimentation Mm -hmm. in B2B anyway. And the lack of a real appetite. Everyone says they want it. No one really wants it. I know. It's so true. It's so true. It's so frustrating. (laughs) If you can't tell, I absolutely love chatting with Ashley. From the moment I first met her in September at an event in Chicago where we both happened to be speaking, I immediately felt like we were kindred spirits. She's a phenomenal marketer, super authentic person who just honestly tells it like it is, which I 
roll that way too. So I wasn't really surprised when our conversation during the show veered from marketing to parenting and back to marketing again. Now let's dive into my top three takeaways from our conversation. First, balancing a career and a family is hard, especially for women. We can't do it all. And I honestly don't believe that you can have it all. At least I haven't met someone who's been able to have it all without having a ton of help. For me, there are times when I feel like I'm doing a great job at work, but wish I was spending more time with my family. And other times when I'm so focused on what's going on in my family life that I know I should be spending more time focusing on work. It's a balance, but it really also isn't a work-life balance. In my opinion, it's a work-life integration, finding a way to be fulfilled in your career while also putting your family first and knowing there are times when one area may be more intense than the other. Next, no, I cannot make something go viral. No marketer can make something go viral, except maybe a celebrity with a huge social media following, and even that isn't guaranteed. I cannot tell you how many times I have been asked just to make it go viral. Like there's some hidden marketing button that we all have access to that enables us to make campaigns go viral and get hundreds of thousands of visits. If marketers had the access to the so-called viral button, don't you think we would have already used it? Spoiler alert, we would have, it doesn't exist. And no one should be measuring the success of any effort based on whether or not it went viral. It should be based on how many people in your ideal customer profile or ICP engage with your brand as a result, because sending a bunch of non-qualified traffic to your website as a result of a campaign isn't what success looks like to me. Success is getting the right people to your website from a campaign and converting them. Finally, Can we all agree that there are rarely marketing emergencies? Marketing is not a life or death situation. So almost all marketing issues can likely wait until the morning. The only exception in my mind is if you get super drunk and start posting inappropriately on your company's social media. Yep, I've seen someone do that before. It's not pretty. That's an emergency. Otherwise, there aren't marketing emergencies. Yet so many of us feel like we can't disconnect. And if we're being honest, I struggle with disconnecting too, which is honestly why I go on cruises because the internet doesn't work so I can't get on my phone. But I digress. So many marketers are treating different issues they have like it's on fire. I've even had a boss before who I would swear every week would create these weekly fire drills, almost like clockwork. Towards the end of the week, something unexpected would be on fire. We would need to literally drop everything to work on it, only to find out later it wasn't as big of a deal as everyone thought it was. And that doesn't need to happen. We all just need to take a step back and realize we're marketers. We're not doctors. We're not out there saving lives. We can take a breath, relax for an evening, and the world won't end. I'm Stephanie Cox, and you've been listening to Mobile Matters. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Until then, be sure to visit Lumivate.com and subscribe to get more access to thought leaders, best practices, and all things mobile.